the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And best wishes for the new year. And those of you know about the show, you know, the first part of the show, we usually talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. If you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, please feel free to give our firm a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. We don't charge for the first consultation. So if you have any questions about that, come in, give us a call, and we'll talk it over. Now, tonight, we're going to have a couple of interviews on, and our first interview is going to be Dr. Jane Grumley. Now, the John Wayne Cancer Institute, she's director with the John Wayne Cancer Institute, researching breast cancer. And we've met, Beth, over the years, we've met a lot of remarkable people who work at the John Wayne Cancer Institute. They are. It's it's more than just, you know, you figure, well, you're a medical doctor, you're a smart person. You're, these people are good people. I mean, they care about you. They care about their clients. It's the first time that I ever heard um, a doctor say that they were so happy that they joined because they felt like they were part of a family. And they said, you know, the the... The John Wayne children and grandchildren embraced them all because this was their a mission for their father. So the love that the children and grandchildren have still have for their father extends to all the people that work at the hospital, the research people, and there it's it's a very exclusive bunch of people, and it's an internship that that is prized. And after Dr. Grumley, we're going to be talking to one of our favorite historians, Rickard Brookheiser, who has a book about John Marshall. And John Marshall, I wouldn't say he's a forgotten part of American history, but he is somewhat forgotten because he's the man who shaped the Supreme Court back in the late part of the 18th century going into the 19th century. And a, a remarkable man who, before he was on the Supreme Court, it was just a job to some guys who didn't even want it, so... He shaped American history and, and had a major impact in American history, almost as much as any of our other founding fathers. What's interesting to me is his life was part of the struggle between the branches in our government, the Supreme Court. I mean, how much power were they supposed to have? And even the president 
how much power is the president supposed to have? Was most everything supposed to rest with Congress? Was Congress in charge of everything? And I think, I think that Marshall was one of the ones that said, you know, this is an equal branch. You know, checks and balances are important. And by making it a powerful institution, which he did, I think, single-handedly, then it did truly become part of the checks and balances that we have in our government. I know people complain this, that, and the other about judges. I think it's important to know the history of the development of our judicial system. Okay, so we're going to take a short break. At the end of the break, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jane Grumley of the John Wayne Cancer Institute. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718 238 6500 or visit their website connorsandsullivan.com Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Do you want to hear your parish priest talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement? The key mission of Priests for Life is to help priests do exactly that. The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then, when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Many of you on this show know that we're big fans of the of the John Wayne Cancer Institute and the work they've been doing. And with us right now is one of the doctors from the John Wayne Cancer Institute, and it's Dr. Jamie Grumley. And I had the pleasure of meeting her a few weeks ago when she was in New York. Doctor, welcome to the Connors Corner Show. Thank you. What is the John Wayne Cancer Institute? I think most of our listeners know, but what ex exactly do you guys do? Well, I think the John Wayne Cancer Institute is a very unique um, cancer research facility. Most of cancer research is done in either large universities or in industry. And um, we don't have the luxury of actually having more of what's, what feels like a boutique research institute. It has a lot of brilliant minds that have gathered in um, this facility here in Santa Monica with the support of foundations um, that are passionate about the work that we're doing. 
Um, and together we can actually do some amazing things because we don't have a lot of the bureaucracy and a lot of the other kind of things associated with larger institutions or with companies, we actually have the unique opportunity to, to look at some, you know, groundbreaking level one research that a lot of other places find very difficult to do. So I think it's, it's a unique place um, and it's wonderful for somebody like me who's a surgeon who's passionate about what I do and, and excited to, to ask some of these questions that we haven't been able to ask at other institutions. Um, and so it's a really exciting place for cancer research and clinicians and patients really to take advantage of some of these um, groundbreaking research studies that we have available. Now, what kind of work and research are you personally involved with, doctor? Yeah, so I do mostly clinical type of research, um, or I have in the past. So some of the things that I've done are new techniques in breast cancer surgery, like oncoplastic surgery, and how we can actually improve our ability to resect breast cancers while improving the cosmesis for women. Um, I think that's one of the things that we've not done a very good job with in the past. Um, in the 90s, we went from doing large mastectomies to doing you know, tiny incisions, taking out the area of cancer, but the problem with that was the patients often had to go back for a second operation or re-excision. So you always hear these horror stories of patients saying, oh, I had surgery, but then they didn't get it all and we have to go back for more. Unfortunately, that is a limitation of partials because we just can't see where the cancer cells are. Um, but if we end up taking more tissue and we try to do a better cancer operation, the breast is left with a huge deformity and defect. And patients, you know, we're seeing lots of those patients now where one breast is much smaller than the other and there's a huge concavity. So then the pendulum swung to the other side and everybody wanted mastectomies again because, you know, we could reconstruct and make it look better. But there wasn't really a good medical reason um, in most cases to do it. You know, we have lots of studies recently that's published on Patients with stage zero, tiny amounts of cancer get a mastectomy and they're getting these big operations and not really um, needing it. So oncoplastic surgery is a totally different approach. So we're using plastic surgery techniques to take out cancer. Um, we know women have gone to plastic surgeons for years to reshape the breast, lift things up, and it looks great afterwards and they get to throw away, away a whole bunch of breast tissue. But we can actually use that to our advantage as a cancer surgeon because I can then take out more tissue decreasing the risk of having to come back while improving the cosmesis or the appearance of the breast after surgery. Um, and so patients are thrilled. You know, a lot of times they're like, wow, I can be cancer-free and I don't have a deformity and I don't have to go back for multiple operations. And so a lot of my research is, you know, improving those surgical techniques, but also, you know, trying to limit the amount of radiation we have to do to women. Um, so we also are doing a lot of intraoperative radiation therapy. So instead of doing six weeks of whole breast radiation, we have the opportunity of doing the radiation at the time of the operation. And you know, a lot of our patients who are screen detected, so tiny little cancers that are found, you could essentially do surgery and do the radiation at the same time and they could be done with kind of their active treatments for breast cancer in one day. So things have definitely come a long way when it comes to breast cancer. And I think there are just more applications for that. You know, as we go further along, patients who have done well from breast cancer, you know, as they age, there's, an, you know, an additional risk of breast cancer. If they get a tiny recurrence, maybe we can do something smaller and not having to do mastectomies. So I think it's really exciting. It's an exciting time for breast cancer, and we're advancing things all the time. Um, and there are just so many 
different things that we can look at, but that's kind of where my passions are. What is the difference between, let's say, treatment 30 years ago and today? Oh, I think it's huge. I think, you know, 30 years ago, there's a lot of fear when it comes to breast cancer. And so, you know, as physicians, we always did as much as we could, right? 30 years ago, most women got mastectomies. A lot of them had all their lymph nodes removed. Um, We weren't able to detect small, tiny cancers before it became more aggressive or larger cancers that needed more aggressive treatments. We were doing chemotherapy on a lot of patients. And what we're finding out today is that it's not just the size and the appearance and the location of the cancer, it's the behavior of the cancer. So we've totally changed our thinking in that we have to look at the genetic makeup and the behavior of that cancer to figure out how much they actually need. Most women who are screen detected now actually don't necessarily even need chemotherapy. They don't need mastectomy. They don't need a lot of the things we've all thought were necessary before. What would you say to women that, you know, afraid to be screened? Because I I think they're hearing or they remember all the horror stories of their mothers, let's say in the 1980s, 90s. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that fear is that it doesn't make the cancer go away. If you have cancer, it's there. If we find it early, we have so many more options and we can limit the amount of treatments that we need to do. Screening's not fun. I've done a mammogram. It's really not comfortable. It's not fun. But the alternative, I think, if you think about it, if you don't screen, a lot of these cancers are much bigger or, you know, much later stage when we find it. So we end up having to do more therapies. And the one dreaded therapy is probably chemotherapy. Nobody really wants to sign up for chemotherapy if they don't need it. But if we find it early, that often gets eliminated from the need um, for treatment. And so I think most people are hearing a lot of mixed messages out there when it comes to screening. Some people will say, oh, it doesn't improve your survival. Oh, you don't need it every year. I think it's important to, one, talk to a specialist about what your needs are because everybody has different family history, different risk factors. But I think it's more important to understand that all the study shows a survival benefit. So if you screen, we tend to find it earlier. If we tend to find it earlier, patients do better. Um, Now, some of the studies who argue that there is no survival benefit, I would argue is because we have better treatments, right? You have to do more treatments to get to the same survival. And we're getting better. We're targeting things. We're finding new drugs. We're able to be more specific in our treatments, but you have to go through those treatments to get to the same survival. So screening, I I think, is still really important. The other thing that people don't realize about screening is that when we do screening, we're actually looking for very small, subtle differences between mammograms. So if you're not, you know, doing it on a regular basis, it's really kind of hard to tell. Is that something that was already there or is that something that we need to be concerned about? Because nobody wants a biopsy if they don't actually need it, right? And that's one of the arguments a lot of people will have about mammograms is, oh, I get a mammogram, and then they have to biopsy me, and then it was nothing. And I was all freaked out for a couple of weeks because of it. Well, it's hard for us to tell if it's something important if we haven't seen kind of the progression of the change, or maybe it's been there for three years and we didn't even realize, and that didn't even need a biopsy. So I think it's important to do it on a regular interval, but it's also important to understand what your needs are, because everybody's needs are different. Um, And so talking to a specialist will help. Earlier, you mentioned about foundations supporting the work of the John Wayne Cancer Institute. But let's say you're you're the person there, you're making a will, and and I see those people every day of the week. 
you're not just looking for foundation money. If if somebody wants to contribute, why should they contribute, let's say, to the, the John Wayne Cancer Institute instead of another organization that fights cancer? Whoever is going to donate is going to have to be passionate about what we do. And I think the John Wayne Cancer Institute is is one that is definitely visionaries. Um, they're not looking to just do what everybody else is doing. They're looking to see what the patients really need um, and where we can make it a huge impact. Um, I think a lot of the work, especially in breast cancer here, is in triple negative breast cancer, which is a very devastating type of breast cancer. Um, but we're looking to make the patient's treatments better, not just let's do the same thing everybody else is doing. There's a lot of immunotherapy that's being done right now, which would significantly improve patient care. Um, so I think there's just that vision of focusing on the patient and bettering the lives of patients that um, I think is very admirable. Um, I think they've collected a really amazing group of people um, and that the money is being used kind of in an efficient and useful way. You know, a lot of times money get poured into foundations and you really don't know what the money is really, you know, what's the result of it? Are you getting an impact? Um, and I think you can definitely see how um, the money here at St. John's um, and at the John Wayne Cancer Institute is really making a huge impact on patient lives. Dr. Jamie Grumley, John Wayne Cancer Institute, thank you for being on the, the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Thank you so much for having me. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia once again call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement frank melia nmls number 62591 all loans provided by quantic bank nmls number 403503 we all know someone who's been touched by cancer it's the second leading cause of death and it took the life of my father john wayne but even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. 
To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. From our family to yours, I wish you a happy and healthy new year. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, it's been a while since we had somebody from National Review on the show, and that's my fault. We probably haven't reached out. But we're correcting that a little bit because we're having Richard Brookshizer, who's, who's got a book about John Marshall. The Supreme Court's been in the news a lot recently, and the guy who probably made the Supreme Court a newsworthy organization was John Marshall. Welcome to Connors Corner, Richard. Thanks for having me. Okay, so your book, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court, John Marshall. Why is that title? John Marshall was the fourth chief justice. He gets the job uh, in 1801. He's a lame duck appointment by President John Adams. So in the first 11 years of the Supreme Court, there had been three chief justices. Uh, One was a recess appointment. He was not confirmed by the Senate. The other two uh, quit the job after five or six years. So John Jay, the first one, and Oliver Ellsworth, the third one. So uh, that's a fair amount of turbulence. Marshall is in there for 34 years. He swears in five presidents in nine inaugural ceremonies. Uh, 34 years is still a record for a chief justice. So he's there for a long time. He also uh, issues, the court issues a lot of unanimous opinions, many of them written by him. He gives the court a solidity and a unanimity, which gives it authority. And he steers it, he steers it through some very um, difficult political challenges, uh, and it, it weathers those. By the end, by the time he steps down, the Supreme Court is a peer of Congress and of the president, which it hadn't been when it first um, went to operation. What was the perception of the Supreme Court and George Washington's administration and John Adams? How did it change? Well, it you know it it didn't make a few decisions that had some importance. One of them was immediately rebuked by a constitutional amendment. That was a case called Chisholm v. Georgia, in which um, a citizen of a state different from Georgia sued the state of Georgia, and the case went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Chisholm won his suit. And all the states were so <laughs> alarmed by this that in within four years, they'd passed the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, which made it unconstitutional for a citizen outside a state to sue a state. Uh, so, so, all right, that was, that was an important decision, even though it was almost immediately shot down. But one problem with the Supreme Court uh, in those days, and this lasted until after the Civil War, justices had to ride circuit. They also had to serve as circuit court judges, which is the second highest level uh, in the federal court system. And for the first 11 years, the circuits were enormous. There were only three circuits for the entire United States. There was northern, middle, and southern. So, you know, the northern one was New York and all of New England, and the middle one uh, was Pennsylvania and the Chesapeake and and uh, all of Virginia. And the southern one, you know, it was just vast, and the roads were terrible, 
Uh, one justice uh, got thrown out of his, his carriage, and the one of the carriage wheels went over his leg and broke it. Uh, another one was trying to cross the river over the ice in the winter, and he fell through and had to be pulled out. I mean, it was just punishing, punishing work. Now, um, after Marshall came in, uh, Congress changed the law a bit, so the justices still had to ride circuit, but they they split the circuits up, so there were six instead of three. So you still had to do this awful job, but it was it was only half as bad. So it was you know it was a lot of work for not much clout. And when um, when John Jay, he was the first Chief Justice. He was in there for six years. Then he ran for Governor of New York, which also tells you something. Could you imagine John Roberts stepping down to run for Governor of whatever state <laughs> he's from? I mean, it's inconceivable. Right. But that's what Jay did. And then when John Adams is looking for a fourth Chief Justice because the third guy had bad health and he wrote and he said, I got to quit. Adams thought of Jay, putting him back in there. He nominated him. The Senate confirmed him. And then Adams got a letter from Jay saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to take the job. It has no dignity. You know? so that and that's for a man who served. Yeah, that was the man of the view, the first man who held it. He said, I'm not going to do that again. Um, but so, so And so that's how John Marshall got the job. He was the second, uh, he was the second choice. And he... Um, Gives it dignity. Over 34 years, that's what he gives it, dignity and authority. Who was John Marshall before he was appointed to the Supreme Court? Well, he um, he's from Virginia. He served in the Revolution for uh, almost the whole length of it, uh, 1775 to 81. After the war, he becomes a lawyer in Richmond. Uh, he's a very successful lawyer. He's very good at it. Uh, and he holds some political offices, you know, state-level offices in Virginia. And uh, then in the late 1790s, he, he gets summoned to Mount Vernon by his old commander-in-chief, George Washington. And America already has a two-party system. There's the Federalist Party of Washington and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Then there is the Republican Party of, of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. In no relation to the current GOP. It, it becomes the Democratic Party, but that, that was its first name. So Washington is, is very alarmed about the weakness of the Federalist Party in Virginia, and he, he's calling Marshall to Mount Vernon to tell him, you've got to run for Congress. You know, Marshall doesn't want to do it because he's making nice money as a lawyer, and he, he begs off and he begs off, but Washington is insistent and uh, one story has it that that Marshall was so anxious, made so anxious by all this, he decided, I'm going to get up at the crack of dawn and just leave. I can't, I can't take Washington asking me anymore. But Washington had gotten up earlier and put on his old uniform. <laughs> so Marshall felt, all right, I got to run for Congress. He runs, he wins. Uh, then John Adams makes him his Secretary of State at the very end of the Adams administration. So when John Adams is in the White House as a lame duck, he's already lost uh, uh, the election of 1800 to Thomas Jefferson, and John Jay has just written him to say that he will not become Chief Justice again. Adams is sitting in the Oval Office with his Secretary of State, John Marshall, and he says, who shall I appoint now? And Marshall doesn't say anything. And Adams looks at him and says, I believe I'll nominate you. So that's how he got the job. Now, what was the confirmation 
process like back then? Obviously, it was a lot different. A lot different. There were no hearings. I mean, hearings don't happen until the 20th century. There could be opposition. Um, and remember, I, I mentioned there'd been a, a recess appointment of a of a chief justice when Washington was president, and then the Senate wouldn't confirm him when they came back into session. So there could, you know, there could be people shot down, but there, there were no hearings. Uh, Marshall had pretty easy had pretty easy sailing, uh, and he he actually served. Uh, the Supreme Court had two terms in those days. There was a, a term in January or February, February, then one in the summer. These were these were very short terms, no longer than a month. Uh, although they actually they they worked pretty hard. They they heard a lot of cases in those brief times, and then Congress later very soon changed the law, got rid of the summer term. But so Marshall has his uh, first um, session as Chief Justice at the tail end of the Adams administration before he swears in Thomas Jefferson as the third president. And the interest of that is he and Jefferson are cousins. They're uh, second cousins once removed. And Jefferson is probably the only man Marshall ever hated. Uh, and, and Jefferson hated him in return. Jefferson hated more people than, than that, but he certainly Marshall was on Jefferson's list also. I think that might be worth a comment because I think a lot of commentators, people today, think, well, back then everything was civilized and everybody liked each other. And I think they have oh, a false man. perception of, you know, 18th, 19th, early 19th century politics. It was worse. I really have to say it was worse. We're getting there. I mean, we're getting back to that level. But it was worse. And the proof of it is no one kills each other in duels. Right. I mean, uh, not that I know of. Scalise got shot up by that that crazy uh, Bernie supporter, but uh, it wasn't in a duel with Bernie Sanders. I mean, people, uh, political opponents fought duels and often sometimes they were killed. That's we all know that's how Hamilton died. But he but he wasn't he was by no means the only one. No, the politics, it was inflamed. It was poisonous. The election of 1800. This is the rematch between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, which Jefferson wins. It was one of the ugliest in American history. And uh, so why does why do Marshall and Jefferson hate each other? Jefferson thinks that Marshall is a diehard Federalist, uh, which is pretty much the truth. He thinks that Marshall is a sophist, that he twists the words of the Constitution to get the results he likes. Uh, he tells he tells someone, uh, I would never answer a direct question that Marshall posed me. If he asked me if the sun were shining, I would say, I don't know, sir, I cannot tell. Because he feared that Marshall would take whatever you said, yes or no, and he'd turn it into Marbury versus Madison. You know, he'd, he'd just do that. Now, Marshall's view of Jefferson, um, he thought he was a demagogue. He thought he played to popular passions. Uh, he thought that Jefferson pretended to be a hands-off president, but that he really wanted to run everything behind the scenes uh, through his allies in Congress, uh, which was true. That's how Jefferson ran his presidency. Uh, the, main, the main source of Marshall's dislike of his cousin was that he felt that Jefferson had stabbed George Washington in the back 
when Washington was president and Jefferson was Washington's secretary of state. And if you if you did dirt on George Washington, you just went to the top of Marshall's lifetime blacklist. There was no forgiveness for that. So so here are these two these two um great Virginians and Suddenly, Jefferson is president. His supporters uh, have control of the Senate and the House. It's a blue wave. But here's John Marshall from the losing party, the Federalist Party, at the head of the Supreme Court. So it's a it's a recipe for conflict, and, and conflict does indeed happen. Richard, we have to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, talking to Richard Brookhauser about our first prominent Chief Justice's Supreme Court. John Marshall. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from pro taxes and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected i'm mike connors founder of connors and sullivan people don't plan to fail they fail to plan the time to plan is now i'm beth connors call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers connors and sullivan in brooklyn queens manhattan and staten island call 718-238-6500 718-238-6500 or connors and Sullivan.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6000 or visit ccbq.org. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We're talking to Richard Brookheiser about Chief Justice John Marshall. Marbury versus Madison, you mentioned it. Can you explain that to the audience? What what was the issue and what was determined? Well, that's that's probably the most famous uh, of Marshall's cases because it establishes uh, the, the precedent that the Supreme Court can overrule a law passed by Congress or a portion of a law passed by Congress if the court 
believes that it's unconstitutional. Uh, I don't think that that was so radical when it happened as it's now taught in law schools. Uh, the concept of judicial review was already out there. It was familiar. Alexander Hamilton had written about this in the Federalist Papers. Uh, this had come up in the ratifying con conventions when the, when the Constitution was being ratified by the states. It had come up in the Virginia ratifying convention where John Marshall was one of the delegates. He'd actually spoken to this point and said that this is something that could happen. So it was not it was not like like a ruling from outer space, uh, but but let me tell you what what the case was and why it was important at the time. Uh, William Marbury was a man who had who had gotten a job as a justice of the peace in the District of Columbia. This is at the tail end of the Adams administration. John Adams, as the lame duck, is trying to hand out um, patronage basically to fellow Federalists. And one of the, the jobs he can fill is justices of the peace in the District of Columbia because the federal government runs the affairs in the district. So William Marbury and some other fed, Federalists get this job. Uh, the, the commissions, however, are not delivered by the time that the new administration comes in. A few of them have been left in the office of the Secretary of State uh, signed and sealed, but they, they just had not been sent out. So uh, Jefferson and his team come in, and their attitude is, well, we're not, you know, we're not going to be the delivery men for our defeated opponents. If they couldn't bother to get these, to, you know, to the right people, we're we're just not going to take them. So William Marbury knows he had this appointment coming, and he sues Jefferson's Secretary of State, James Madison. And that would be the man responsible in those days for, for you know, delivering such a commission. He says, "I want my commission," uh, and uh, the the Jefferson administration refuses to respond to the suit. It's heard immediately in the Supreme Court because they have um, uh, they have original uh, jurisdiction uh, uh, over over such a case, and. Um, Marshall, Marshall rules that Marbury is asking for a writ, a particular kind of a writ that would direct the Secretary of State to give him his commission. And the reason he's asking for it is that the Judiciary Act of 1789, which set the whole federal court system up, among many other things, said that the Supreme Court had the power to issue these particular writs. Okay. So, but what Marshall decides is that, in fact, according to the Constitution, the Supreme Court does not have the power to do that in this case because they don't have original jurisdiction in cases involving the Secretary of State. They, they only have it, you know, in other cases. They would have it if it was an ambassador, if it was a diplomat from a foreign country. But uh, in, in the case of the Secretary of State, they don't have the power to issue these writs. So therefore, he says, um, William Marbury can't, can't get his commission. But before he reaches that decision, that conclusion, it's a very long decision. It's 9,000 words long. It took him like a couple hours to read it. Uh, he, he walks through the whole history of Marbury's problem, and he says, Marbury should have gotten his commission. He has a right to it. And if you have a right to something, the legal system 
does give you redress. So he's basically reading a lecture to the Jefferson administration that they were wrong to have sat on this commission. Now, his conclusion is that issuing this particular writ is not something that the Supreme Court can do. In other words, Marbury, maybe you could try again, try some other way and get it. You just can't use this way. But the whole run-up to that conclusion was basically uh, a 9,000-word lecture to the Jefferson administration saying that you were really bending the rules here. You, You were not doing what you should have done. And People at the time noticed that. The headline on the New York Post, which was Alexander Hamilton's Federalist newspaper, was um, uh, Jefferson administration violates constitution. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he saw very clearly the, the kind of the political strategy, the politics of Marshall's decision. But the, the, the judicial part of it, uh, why it's a famous case, was that the Supreme Court Um, ruled that a portion of a law passed by Congress was unconstitutional. And this wouldn't happen again until uh, the Dred Scott decision in 1857. Before or after Marbury versus Madison and then Dred Scott, what would you say is is the one case you would like to highlight of John Marshall's Supreme Court tenure? I think I'd like to highlight Fletcher versus Peck. This was an 1810 decision. It involved a land sale by the by the state of Georgia. Uh, Georgia had this huge uh, back country, which is now the states of Alabama and Mississippi. That was originally part of Georgia. It went all the way to the Mississippi River. Georgia was a very poor state. Uh, the only way they could raise money to balance their books was by selling off all this land. So they had a a fire sale for 35 million acres of land, and they sold it for a penny and a half an acre. Well, the whole thing was corrupt. The whole legislature had been been bribed uh, to to offer this bargain basement price, and the people who bought it, they they immediately flipped it, you know, to make a profit. Uh, The people of Georgia, when they found out that every legislator had gotten $1,000 for his vote, uh, there was outrage. Uh, new legislators were elected, and and they canceled the sale. You know, they they took it all back, and they also imposed penalties on anyone in the state of Georgia who would who would hear a suit, a lawsuit based on this sale. In other words, if you were a court clerk somewhere and you let someone, you know, file papers for a suit, you'd be fined. So so they're they're taking it back and they're they're trying to stamp it out so no one can can re- revive this sale. Well, you know, the land had already been resold, there'd already been other purchasers. People, you know, downstream from this original sale had already, you know, got their hands on portions of this land. And two uh, two people from New England uh, one guy had bought some Georgia land from another, and then he said, well, wait a second, the sale has been rescinded. You didn't have legal title to that, so I want my money back. So so these were these two men were Fletcher and Peck. Uh, they went to court. Uh, they were from two different states, so it becomes a matter for the federal court system. One was from Massachusetts. The other was from New Hampshire. And it comes up to the Supreme Court. Now, the reason why, uh, after giving all that backstory, the reason why this is important is that Marshall rules in favor of the validity of the sale. And the reason he does is he says this is a contract. 
this sale was a contract and uh, the, the Article 1, Section 10 forbids the states from violating the sanctity of contracts. And, and so he is saying, doesn't matter if the original, if there was corruption involved in the original sale, it's not the business of the Supreme Court, you know, to, to say whether a state government is good or bad or whether the people involved were nice or not nice. The sale was made. It was in there in black and white. That is a contract, and you can't go back on that later just by passing a law and saying, oops, I made a mistake. We're taking it back. And, and he says that, that this provision of the Constitution, he calls it a bill of rights for the people of the states. Now, and that's, that's kind of shocking because we think of the Bill of Rights as the first ten amendments. You know, freedom of speech, no established religion, right to keep and bear arms, um, no, no um, searches and seizures without warrants. That's what we think of the Bill of Rights as. But Marshall is saying, no, the Bill of Rights in the Constitution is the provision that guards the obligation of contracts. And he sees that contracts is an essential tool for the American economy and for the relations that people have with each other. You know, you're making deals all the time. But if these can be taken back by legislative action, by political pressure, who knows where we are? You know, an agreement you make could be um, undone next year or two years down the road. And what kind of a what kind of a world would that be? Marshall is saying, no, this is not the way things will run. The Constitution says it's not the way things will run. And, and that's what he um, rules in Fletcher versus Peck. All right. Now, here we are, you know, more than 200 years later. Why is John Marshall important to be studied today? What's well, the impact? A couple issues are very hot. I mean, there, there's talk if the Democrats take, were to take the House. The, the, there was talk that maybe they would impeach Justice Kavanaugh, you know, because of, uh, of alleged um, lies that he told during his testimony. They would impeach a Supreme Court justice. Uh, the first time this happened was when Marshall was chief justice. One of his colleagues was impeached by the House and tried by the Senate. Uh, this is Justice Samuel Chase. Marshall was actually called to testify at his trial in the Senate. Uh, it looked as if Thomas Jefferson's party was going to just go through all the justices of the Supreme Court and pick them off one by one and leave, you know, get rid of them and leave vacancies, which Jefferson could then fill with good Republican Party members. Uh, Chase survived his trial. Um, so I, I would say that's a precedent of interest for people thinking of impeaching Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, this was when the, the party that was interested in impeachment had control of both the House and the Senate, plus the White House, and yet they still couldn't pull it off. So I would just offer that as a word to the wise. Uh, a second thing that might be relevant is treason. We heard that word thrown around a lot when the uh, Russian investigations were at their height a couple months ago, the Mueller investigation into, you know, to what degree uh, the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia, if they had at all. And, uh, you know, the rhetoric of treason uh, was being used. Well, uh, John Marshall 
ruled on a treason case while he was chief justice. This was the treason trial of Aaron Burr. Marshall heard it as a circuit court judge uh, in Richmond, which is where Burr was tried. And Burr was acquitted because Marshall read the Constitution very strictly. Uh, Treason is only for giving aid and comfort to the enemy, that is, an enemy in time of war, or it's for waging war upon the United States. And there have to be two witnesses to an overt act. And the government was not able to prove that. Now, you know, Aaron Burr probably was up to some very bad stuff uh, in the Western United States around 1806-1807, and he certainly he'd sent out secret feelers to both Britain and and Spain to try and get their help in in splitting up the United States and and maybe setting Burr up as the Emperor of Mexico or some sort of harebrained scheme of his. But the government was not able to prove this in court, and so Aaron Burr walked. And I think that sets a precedent for taking treason very strictly. Uh, a third thing that might come up is is efforts to either to pack the court. People are talking about that. If you know, if the Democrats uh, should win the presidency in 2020 or 2024, and Trump has put all these um, conservative justices in, well, why couldn't the Democratic Congress increase the size of the court? And you know. Put in, put in enough uh, uh, Democrat-appointed justices to overbalance it. Uh, well, there were proposals um, not to pack the court so much, but to to try and loosen Marshall's grip on it when he was chief justice. There were proposed amendments to uh, restrict the jurisdiction of the court or to say that the Senate would have a veto on court decisions that were on constitutional questions. Or to say that if it was a constitutional question, there had to be 10 justices and a majority of seven. You know, you had to have seven, you know, to to rule on a constitutional question, a supermajority. Uh, none of these amendments um, became amendments. Uh, they all they all died on the vine. But there was, you know, there was enough sentiment that people were talking about this. And again, I would say, well, this is this is maybe a precedent for such discussions now. It's harder than people think. You know, people now it's on the left. It used to be on the right. There used to you used to hear a lot of talk on the right. Well, let's limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Uh, easier said than done. And and the first example of it being hard to do was when Marshall was Chief Justice. And I, I think there, uh, the relevance of him is that he made the court uh, authoritative enough that people were not willing to tamper with it casually. And that's a legacy from his time, for good or for ill. I mean, may, maybe there are times, well, certainly in the Dred Scott decision, where the court uh, makes decisions that are horrendous. But part, thanks largely to Marshall's tenure, uh, we have to we have to live with them. Uh, we have to find other ways to deal with these problems than you know rebuking the court directly. All right. The name of the book: John Marshall, the man who made the Supreme Court. The author: Richard Brookheiser. Thank you for bringing history to life on Connor's Corner. 
Thanks for having me. You know, and, and one thing about historians, you know, that I hope that the general public starts to realize American politics has always been a tough game. Right now, people think things are really nasty and rugged, but it was nasty and rugged oh in, in the, the 18th and 19th centuries. Alexander Hamilton was killed. And that was a political duel. That wasn't just... No. Andrew Jackson was shot in one of these duels. I mean, people, it, it was... They hated each other. Good grief. Jefferson hated Washington, and he treated Washington so badly that he made a lot of enemies with other people who had so much reverence for Washington. No, no, it's it's always been bad. All right. And, you know, in future weeks, we're going to be talking about Andrew Jackson, and we're also going to be talking about Andrew Jackson, the Trail of Tears, and a little bit about Choctaws, Beth. Andrew Jackson, I think, is the, is the fall guy for a lot of stuff that was was wrong. Under the Madison administration, they were wanting to remove the the Native Americans for the five civilized tribes. And I know we can talk about that. But being part Choctaw, the Choctaw were part of these five tribes. Andrew Jackson liked the Choctaws. When all, by the time his presidency came along, these, these tribes were going to be removed no matter what. Long story short, Jackson went to the Choctaws and said, I can't help you if you remain part of the tribe. If you become American citizens, you stay on your land, you're safe. And that's the un- that's a really an untold story. My ancestors became American citizens, stayed on their land in Mississippi. So we're going to be talking about Andrew Jackson next week. Thank you for listening to us. Lori, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.